Hello. Hi. So we have something that's not quite a cocktail today. But it's still alcohol. And it's not on the rocks either, but that's fine too. Well, that's just because you don't drink it on the rocks. Oh, my bottle is incredibly dusty. A little dust on the bottle never hurt anybody. It did not. Isn't there a song about that? Yeah, but I can't remember the words to sing it. <laughs> so anyway, this is Crime and Time on the Rocks. And we're drinking a 2016 Poor Souls Block Barbera from New Clairvaux Vineyards today. And I think I've had this one before, but I can't be sure. Most likely you have, because we go there a lot. Okay, so let's try it. Okay. Clink. This is actually a good Barbera. It is. It is a good Barbera. I like it. Um, I've had some that I love and some that I don't love. <laughs> this one's good. Another really good one from this area is uh, Nesseray Vineyards Barbera. It's excellent and amazing. And there's Big Dog and Little Dog. They're barking. outside now. Yeah. So, well, Barbera. So, I'll admit, I had this whole plan and story thought up, and then I completely changed my mind last night, like I oh, want to do. Yes. <laughs> and it's not specifically about Barbera, but it's wine-related. Oh, okay. And it's a good story. Well, the second you said that we were going to do wine, I served Barbera because I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and mine is actually a play off the, t the name of the grape, Barbera. Mine was going to be also, uh -huh. but... I want to know what you were going to do that you didn't do. So I was going to do um, Barbara Graham, who m was accused and convicted of murder in, I want to say it was in like the late 50s, and she was the first woman to be put on death row in California. Whoa, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, so I did not do her though. Mm. Well, from what I hear from you, yours is a little lengthy, so I'll go first. Okay. It's short. <laughs> er. <clears throat> so Ruth was born in Denver, Colorado on November 4th, 1916. She went on to have like the typical life of that era. You go to school, blah, blah, blah. You marry your high school sweetheart. So she married her high school sweetheart, Eli, or pardon me, Elliot. She married her high school sweetheart, Elliot Handler in 1938 in Los Angeles. And they opened a furniture factory that specialized in making furniture out of this fancy schmancy new material called lu lucite and plexiglass. Oh my God, lucite furniture. No, <laughs> yes, yes. In the 1920s? In the 1930s. Oh, 30s. 30s. Early 40s, probably, because they got married in 38. I've got some lucite things, no furniture, but like um, just handles heels. for spatula. Just high heels. I mean, <laughs> no, I left those behind when I quit dancing. <laughs> I had the ones with the fish in the heel. No, yeah. I'm totally kidding. I did not ever. Um, but I have a spatula with a lucite handle. It's pretty cool. So they just went along with this little business. And then soon they started another business venture with their friend, Harold Matt Madsen. And they were making picture frames. And they named the new company Mattel. By combining Matt and Elliot. Mattel. Mattel. Know where I'm going yet? I am going to guess because Bar Barbara Mattel Barbie. Barbie. Okay. I don't know about the history of Barbie. I'm going to talk about the history of Barbie. It's, there's a lot. It, it's not, it's pretty detailed. I did not go into complete details because you had mentioned that yours was a little on the long side and it gets into a lot of like really heavy business stuff. Yeah, I and mean, that's not exciting. Stick to the fun stuff. Yeah, it's not fun. I don't need charts and graphs. No, no. So, anyway, Matt and Ruth is their bookkeeper and sales force. She goes out and sells stuff, and Matt and Elliot are making um, picture frames. And pretty soon they decided, hey, we've got all these scraps from picture frames. Why don't we make doll furniture? Elliot's like, I have a background in making furniture. Let's make dollhouse furniture. So they started making dollhouse furniture with the plastic scraps from the picture frames. And pretty soon they decided, well, let's just focus on toys. And Mattel, as we know it today, was born. Mattel. Mattel. Their most famous or their best seller at the time was called the Yuka Doodle. The Yuka Doodle? <laughs> the Yuka Doodle. It's a toy ukulele made out of plastic. The Yuka Doodle. <laughs> yes. That's kind of Top funny. Top seller. So Ruth is trying to juggle her career and her home life and blah, blah, blah. You know, the typical struggles of the go-go. Yeah. Yeah. 
So she, sorry, I'm drinking wine because that's what we do. She noticed one day that her young daughter, Barbara, instead of playing with baby dolls and pretending to be a little mother, Barbara was playing with her paper dolls and pretending that they were adults. And so Ruth... The fact that that's unusual, like, I guess, because we grew up in the Barbie era, seems strange to me. Yes. Because that's all we did. Yeah. Child one and child two have... They had Barbies when they were younger, but now they're more into American Girl. They play with them like they're adults. They give them careers and That's what we did. Like, they're getting dressed to go to work now. Okay, now they're getting dressed to go out to dinner. Absolutely. That's exactly what we did. In fact, if you go up to the playroom, the bookshelf, which typically holds all of the bins with all of the different toys. All of the bins are on the floor and each section of the bookshelf is a different room in the American Girl house. So they just made it into a giant a house. A giant doll house for an 18 inch doll. They're pretty that cool. Was me and my friend. That was child number two and her friend. It's really cool. <laughs> so anyway, so Ruth has this idea. She's got this epiphany. What if we made a doll that looked like an adult. What if I took a paper doll and made it 3D out of plastic? And Elliot says, no one is going to buy their child a doll with boobs. Uh, guess who's wrong? Exactly. So she kind of put the idea down and then they were on a trip to Germany and they found a doll that was called the Build Lily, Build Lily doll which was supposed to be a gag gift manufactured for adults. So Ruth bought one, brought it home, hustled and convinced the board to let her do this. Um, Cause by this time the company was pretty big. So she reconfigured it. And in March 9th, 1959, Barbie was introduced to the New York Toy Fair. When Mickey Mouse Club started their TV show, Ruth invested heavily in television advertising. She was one of the first innovators in advertising directly to children. She's a smart woman. Oh my gosh. There's so, so much, so much that I left out, but she was incredibly intelligent. She found a void and she just would sweep in and take care of it because that's, that's all practically two thirds of what you see on television now are ads targeted directly to children. Of course. So Barbie has gone through, Barbie was named after her daughter, Barbara. Um, Ken was introduced in 1961, and that was named after her son. Barbie has gone through many, many transformations over the years. She has had 125 different careers, including being the first woman president. Well, there you go, folks. You've heard it here first. (laughs) Barbie was the first woman president. (laughs) I had Barbie McDonald's. And I had Seriously? Barbie veterinary. Yeah, it was a legit Barbie McDonald's. I had no idea that they did that. Girl, yeah. Child one and child two had Barbie Girl Scouts. I had the Barbie veterinarian, which I think was pretty common. Mm-hmm. But um, other than that, oh, I had Barbie Dallas cheerleader. Oh my! I did not. When when we grew up, Barbies were a little on the expensive side. They started out well. I think they start. I'll tell you about what they started out as. Now they're pretty cheap, but. So I did not get a Barbie doll until I was 11. I got fake Barbie dolls. I had the, Which is just sad. It is. Do you remember the fake Barbie-esque dolls that your children had that all looked androgynous and none of them, <laughs> you couldn't tell like which one was supposed to be like the woman or the man? Yes, I do remember those. They were hideous. I had, but I had, this is going to date me, I had the Charlie's Angel Barbies. Oh, cool. And a Brooke Shields Barbie. I think they have the Brooke Shields Barbie now. Well, I've shown you the homemade clothes that my mother sewed for My Barbie. girls played with them. Yeah. Yes. They played, I learned to sew on Barbies. I would watch grandma sew, and then I would go and use the scraps and cut the same shapes and make clothes for the Barbies. I think a lot of little girls learn to sew on Barbie. Um, yeah. Barbie's, well, speaking of clothes, she's also been designed for by top, top designers, including Bob Mackie. Um, the Bob Mackie Barbie was, you know, was always sought after. The first Barbie doll, in 1961, they started changing her hair, and she was available in brunette or redhead as well. And in 1969, Barbie got a black friend, breaking the color barrier early on. Well, pretty early, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's reasonably early-ish. I for, guess. For the times of what was going on. Um, her first price was $3, and you could buy additional clothing that was based on the latest in Paris fashion trends for anywhere from $1 to $5. 
A vintage Barbie was recently sold for $27,450. Ooh. Yeah. In the very first year that she was introduced, she sold over $300,000. So Elliot was wrong. Elliot, take that. Yeah. Shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been called Mattel. It should have been Mutt Ruth. Mutt Ruth, exactly. So the 70, over 70 designers have been used for Barbie. In 1965, she got bendable legs. In 1967, she got open and closed eyes and a twistable waist. Do you remember the bendable knees and they would make the click, yeah, click, the, click sound? I love that sound. <laughs> so, yeah, I used to just sit and relax and just bend yeah. my knees like. <laughs> <laughs> so again, being an innovator, in 1970, Ruth was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to have a undergo a radical mastectomy. She could not find a prosthetic that she liked. She tried and tried and tried and couldn't find anything. So typical Ruth Handler fashion, she made one. She went into business with her partner, Peyton Massey. And they started manufacturing the Nearly Me. And it was an instant hit in the 70s and um, even into the 80s. And she personally, Ruth, personally fit First Lady um, Betty Ford after her mastectomy. She's quite an innovator. I Like they, they, do they have a movie? Is there a movie on this? I don't know. I know there's a podcast I listened to ages ago. I didn't listen to it for this and I should have. Great Women of Business by Parcast. Oh. did a podcast on her and it was very very detailed it went really really deep into the business stuff she you know while she was an innovator and awesome she did make her mistakes in 1974 the handlers had a very martha stewart-esque controversy they were asked to step down and in 1978 they were charged with fall fraud and false reporting to the sec they pled no contest, paid a $57,000 fine, and were given 2,500 hours of community service. But, you know, her bra alone, I would think, would count for that. I don't think they counted it for that, but she blamed her illness on not being paying attention to what was going on. I mean, you can suppose that that could have had a lot to do with it. I can imagine. In 1980, this woman is still rocking it in 1980. In 1980, she personally created Barbie and the Rockers. I loved Barbie and the Rockers. <laughs> Barbie and the Rockers. She was actually credited on the film as a writer in Barbie and the Rockers Out of This World. She was inducted into the Junior Achievement U.S. Business Hall of Fame in 1997 and died on April 27th, 2002 at 85 years old. Her invention, Barbie, has had many controversies. In the 1970s, she was accused of um, being materialistic and only caring about clothes and shoes. Um, in 1994... She worked at McDonald's for... She worked at McDonald's. She so, was not materialistic. No. But she was also an astronaut. She cared for animals. She was a vet. She was never a mom. They gave her a babysitting... Well, I'll talk the other controversy. So in 1994, um, someone did some research and found that her body dimensions, if they were on an, on an actual grown-up woman, she would not have enough body fat to menstruate properly. Well, I guess Which, that's why she was never a mother. Exactly. That would be why she was never a mother. Yeah. and the, But they also widened her waist and her hips a little bit, I well, think. Well, the thing I don't like about the modern Barbies, and some of you in our age group, if you don't have children that had these might not know i don't have children but i know these ones they made the knees like hingeable which i find very disturbing yes the the smooth knee with the soft plastic and the click 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 mechanism is so much better so much better not only is it a soothing sound <laughs> it's just better for your it leg just line looks better. <laughs> yeah it looks better in the clothes so anyway she was never made a mother but in 1960 they gave her a um babysitting kit and when asked about it, Ruth said, well, she wanted Barbie to focus on her career, which I think, despite the fact that she's got these ridiculous dimensions, it's still a, a girl empowerment toy. You know, it focused on career and it focused on doing something. Don't sit around and get married, which was what was they were being told well, in the especially 1950s coming from the 50s. That's yeah. like, that was your only option was for your, like a lot of women yeah, or girls. Exactly. Um, in 1995, Saudi Arabia stopped selling Barbie because her dress was scandalous. But soon someone started manufacturing Barbies with hijabis, or however you pronounce that, which is the Muslim yeah. head-to-toe dress. Yes. So Barbie's universal. Little girls want to play with Barbie. Even little boys like playing with Even Barbie. Even little boys like playing with Barbie. Everybody likes Barbie. Nobody playing. likes playing with Ken, though. Can we get that straight? Okay, except for the Ken that looks like Uncle from Tennessee. 
because he's I fun. mean, that's, but that's a Disney <laughs> We just like to hold him up. I don't think so. No, he was an actual Ken. Oh, I thought he was like a Disney. No, we do have movie. all the Disney. My we child number one and child number two have all of the princesses. I have the Gone with the Winds. Um, I would like to see this or get my hand on it. Apparently in 1986, Andy Warhol did a painting of Barbie. Well, we I saw quite a number of Andy Warhol paintings at an exhibit that all of us went to, including the children. And I didn't see Barbie, but I didn't see her either, but I want to see it. Yeah. But Barbie is just ubiquitous. She's everywhere and you can find her. Every single one of the princesses my girls had, even, um, Pocahontas and Jasmine and the, the more obscure princesses they had Barbies of. And that was about the time that we got little dog and, um, Tiana is missing a foot because no, everyone's missing. Yeah, they're everyone's all mi- missing yeah, foot. <laughs> they're all missing feet. Speaking of Barbie, Aunt Shelley spoiled children with Barbie stuff constantly. Just the cruise ship. Just the cruise ship and the golf cart and the what else did they have? Um, the jet ski. The jet oh, ski. Oh yeah, I forgot about the, the jet ski. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're on a cruise ship, you need a <laughs> you jet need ski. Need a jet ski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barbie is fun. Um, I think she's just ubiquitous, and I think Ruth Handler really had a handle on what little girls wanted to play with. I think that she was extremely smart, too, because there was probably other mothers that realized, like, my daughter's playing with their toy this way and didn't think. And, yeah. Or or didn't didn't have the means to do anything about it. her daughter doing it. And then just the fact that this was the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that she was doing this when all of the other mommies were at home baking cookies, which there's nothing wrong with. I stayed home for 10 years and baked cookies. I love cookies. Yes, but she was out innovating this fabulous thing. Although I have, in one of the podcasts that I listened to, um, her and her daughter, Barbara, did not have a great relationship because she was absent a lot, Well, which is sad. that's sad. Yeah. Okay, so... This is not so much focused on the varietal Barbera, but it is about wine. Okay. And one of my favorite things. Yes. Other than like a little glimpse at a Vanity Fair article, pretty much this all came from a documentary. You always give sources and I forget. Well, because this is pretty much ripped from a documentary (laughs) called Sour Grapes and it's available on Netflix. Oh, that's hysterical. Can I do mine really quick? Yeah. Wikipedia, Britannica, Barbie Media, Barbie Mattel, and ThoughtCo. You always use ThoughtCo. I like ThoughtCo. I'll have to look that up someday. I used Barbie Media. Barbie <laughs> Media. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't I used a Vanity Fair. <laughs> of course you did. And uh, pretty much mostly I related you- the outline of what happens in this documentary, Sour Grapes. Okay, so of course you use fancy schmancy journalistic sources like Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. Yes. So in the 90s, wine auctions became popular and these auctions were really high-end wines, a lot of money, Uh and they pretty much could be traced to the dot-com boom is how they became so popular. Oh, makes sense. Yeah, wealthy. New money. New money and people had tons of it and what else is there to do than spend it on wine? Yeah. So wealthy collectors began showing up to these auctions and it was kind of like a see or be seen kind of thing. And like there was this whole like... It's where the cool kids hung out. Yeah, like there was this whole like persona built around being at wine auctions. Interesting. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Yeah, and... Life is high school. Consequently, during this time, because they became popular and because there was so much fresh new money, the um, wine prices began to escalate. Yeah. Uh, one of the people that was the head of an auction house, John Capen, began sending emails to um, he began sending emails to the producer of this documentary, detailing all these lavish wine drinking parties. And they were drinking it. Uh, yeah, it was a wine auction slash drinking party. Oh my goodness. Like, so basically, there was so much money being spent buying these wines uh-huh. that they would open up like like thousand twelve hundred dollar bottles of wine and just pass it around so everyone was drinking wine everyone was buying wine oh tons of money was going around gosh. and so the the auction house that john capen was in charge of was acker merrill and condit 
And it was like pretty much, they're the ones that innovated this like party style of wine auction. It wasn't like Christie's. You weren't sitting there it with a paddle. Fancy. It was fancy. It was fancy, but it was a party fancy. Wow. And actually during, I will, I'll take that back saying it's fancy because on one of the screenshots or one of the like documentary film footage clips that they had, there was like all these like raunchy neon decorations and everything. So it wasn't, so it was an 80s party? It, it wasn't necessarily <laughs> fancy. Oh my goodness. But, um, Capen's emails, the most expensive bottle of wine I've ever had is $48. No, that's not true. Oh, that one is worse. Why did we open that then? We've opened, we've each opened a couple bottles of wine that were more expensive than that. Are you talking about the Counting Crows one? The Counting Crows one was like $75. Why in the holy good night did we open that? It was the 25th anniversary of their tour. Yes, but we left half glasses and we didn't drink it. We drank it eventually. Oh my God. Um, and then... I would not have let you do that if that, I knew that was that expensive. We drank a red blend that was like an $80 bottle of wine. Where? The Ghost Block. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I was thinking about the $48 one that I opened for, hand, for child number one's one month birthday. Because mm. we went, had a, You went cheap. <laughs> I went cheap. I thought it was expensive at the time. I didn't realize Ghost Block was that expensive. Was I drunk when I bought it? Probably. It was like our eighth <laughs> stop on our wine trip. <laughs> That's hysterical. Um, so anyway, but we got our tasting for free that day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. So anyway, Capen's emails included... I just opened that and drank it on a regular damn day. You did? I did. I didn't know. I was just like, oh, let's have this. And it's the most fabulous wine I've ever had. Fuck. I'm gonna buy Sorry eight. to curse, but I didn't realize that. I'm going to buy $80 more wine more often. Holy crap. Don't tell daddy. It was, it was like... <laughs> it was good. It I was enjoyed it. Eight years ago. I remember it. That was eight years ago and it was $80. Yeah. Holy crap. So anyway, the emails that Capen was sending included tasting notes and he used metaphors that weren't usual for the wine industry. For example, quote unquote, it's got a Korean barbecue edge. Oh. And, and quote unquote, sweater in the, sweatier in the glass, a good sweaty, like hot sex. So not your typical like stuffy wine, like connoisseur kind of no, language. No, that's an 80s stockbroker hopped up on Coke. But it's, this is the 90s, the late 90s. Okay, so it's a wannabe. I don't know, but the, the, those are not, those are odd descriptions. It's this. They just sound, pardon my French, douchey. It, they sound douchey. Wait, wait. <laughs> hold your, <laughs> hold your horses. So Acker Merrill Condit had a group of wine enthusiasts that were given the moniker, the Angry Men. And within that, they personally had nicknames like Big Boy and Hollywood Jeff. Oh my God. Turns out, you sure this wasn't the 80s? It's not the 80s. <laughs> so it turns out Hollywood Jeff, Jeff with one F, by the way. Jeff with one F. That makes it so much worse. Yes. Was Jeff Levy, who's a Hollywood film producer. And according to IMDb, he's produced one or more episodes of shows like CSI, Dark Angel, Roswell, The Dead Zone, Rescue Me, Numbers, Monk, Eureka, Ghost Whisperer, and Las Vegas. So legitimate, like actual popular, yeah, popular shows. TV shows. Mm -hmm. Now the movies that he is credited with producing are ones I'm not familiar with. Okay. Well, what are some? I didn't write them down. So they're of that little consequence that they're not even worth writing down. Well, they weren't like I don't think anyone would have known. Those television shows are good. But the television, television shows. shows are all hit shows yeah. for the most part, especially like, you know, there's some that are like really, really popular. Yeah. We're trying to get child one, child two into Eureka, but we started watching it at the same time as we started watching Chuck and Chuck is way more interesting than Eureka. I love Chuck. We started watching the dome first. We started watching the dome. That's what it was. So we started watching Eureka and the dome at the same time. Dome went out and then we found Chuck. So we are doing Chuck, but you're going to watch Eureka. Mark my words. Oh. And someday Monk. So the group, the Angry Men's, the group. <laughs> it's totally loud. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to wait. I would. <laughs> okay, so the Angry Men group's purpose was to share the wine experience amongst the group. Angry Men group? Yeah. Did I miss that? Yeah, you missed it. Angry Men group. That's S the name of their group. Their group was the Angry Men, yeah. And those are the ones where there was 
Big Boy and Hollywood Jeff. What the hell kind of name is Angry Men Group that drinks wine? They'll explain it. Okay, I can see that whiskey. The wines they drink were very expensive, and the group met eight times per year. One member hosted each time, and they provided wine from their cellar for all the participants. Oh. It sounds like a fun club, but a stupid name. It sounds like a fun club. So the name actually came from the practice of being invited to a dinner and bringing a bottle of really nice wine, and you show up and everybody else has brought crap wine. So Okay. (laughs) I have a story to tell. Do you see why? I mean, I get the story now because I'm not in that category of bringing $2,000 bottles of wine in here. Totally not. But like when you show up somewhere and you have like your $12 bottle of wine and someone's brought like freaking Charles Shaw. Yes. So pre-kids, husband and I had a crew that we ran with and we were like always together every weekend. We had a box packed with all of our stuff and husband and I had jet skis and one of them had a boat and we had this camping box and we would literally get off work Friday night, get our stuff together and go nearly every weekend. And Husband and I drank Coors at the time. So we would always bring Coors. It's the banquet beer. It's the banquet beer. Well, sometimes, like we... (laughs) I remember one time we were all running around hiding a beer for the morning after because we were running out of beer. Like we had no beer. And we had a full-on fight about it. Somebody found a beer that someone had hidden. We're like, that's my tomorrow morning beer. No, I'm going to drink it. Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so we always brought name brand beer. So one time, dear friend... <laughs> came to our house for dinner and brought us replacement beer for all the beer of ours that he drank. Mm-hmm. Now, this is multiple, 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 multiple beers. And our replacement beer was a six pack of hams. I mean, it's not like Coors <laughs> is that premium, you know? It's, it's not, not. Like, you're not paying for like, a, it's, it's not that much more. It's not that much more. Like it's two, three dollars. Yes. And it was probably more expensive to get the six pack of hams. Yeah. Then to spring, well, not more expensive, but it was, you know, per volume was more expensive than to spring for the 12 pack, of course. Yeah. But that was, dear friend, that's the way he rolled. (laughs) And I know you know exactly who I'm talking about. Yeah. So the group was, it was customary within the group for them to consume a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars of wine in one night. Oh my God. Good Lord. I think one time I heard that they had consumed up to like $250,000 worth of wine. I think $150,000 is what we spent on our first house. Yeah. So then in 2000 or in, in either 2000 or 2001, the wine universe began noticing this wine collector named Rudy Kernawion. Okay. So he was a young guy, kind of skinny, a little bit geeky looking. And at that time, Rudy was primarily bidding on wines in the three-digit price range. Like, a lot of California wines. Uh, He was really into Merlots. Three-digit is expensive for you and I, but not not, unreasonable Yeah, it's not out of the realm. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it's out of our realm. It's out of our realm. (laughs) But if I won the lottery, it would not be out of my realm, you know. So 18 months later, Rudy reached out to Maureen Downey, who was a New York auction house director, saying that he wanted to be a quote-unquote player on the scene. Okay. So he was asking for her advice, and she found this odd because up until then, he had been, like I said, primarily buying California Merlots. Oh, this was when the Merlot thing was on. Yeah, this was during, yeah, everything Merlot was the thing. So he started there and then he quickly realized that that wasn't going to put him in any sort of position status wise because Uh he was like the hams of the wine world at that point. (laughs) Um, So Rudy was known for having a really excellent body of knowledge on wine. He had an extraordinary palate and the art of wine tasting seemed to come really naturally to him. So people did take him seriously, even though he had just been going from like hundred dollar bottles of wine to like trying to step it up. Oh my goodness. Another one of Rudy's friends was Arthur Sarkisian, who was the producer of Rush Hour, um, the movie. I was just going to, I was thinking, literally thinking the movie. Yeah. Sarkisian (laughs) was described, he just Sarkisian described Rudy as being full of class, warmth, and graciousness, and not like the fakeness of some people in LA. Okay. Another 
person, a journalist, Corey Brown, was doing a feature on wine auction houses and noticed Rudy among the sea of movie producers and wondered who he was. He just looked different. Like, he was a geek. He was not, like, he didn't wear flashy suits. He wore, like, a button-up shirt, and he had glasses and was kind of nerdy, and but also really, really, like, vivacious. Like, he was always talking and always, like, talking to people. Uh Can I make a prediction? Yeah. Is he going to counterfeit Big Shot Wine? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) So it took her months to get him to sit down with her for coffee. Mm -hmm. And then another month or two after that, before he would sit down for an interview. And during the interview, he served her some of his wines. So Brown learned that Rudy lived with his mother in Arcadia, which is a suburb of LA. Yeah. And, and what does he do for a living? Well, that's nobody really knows. Oh, so people around him said that Rudy's family owned the Heineken distribution in all of China, but that was never actually confirmed. Heineken is a big thing in China. I don't know, but it was, I... it was, it's, it wasn't true. Okay. Um, <laughs> that just seems a little low. Rudy's family was apparently wealthy because he was living on a $1 or $1 a month salary. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to see that. He was living on a million dollar per month salary. Holy shit. Yeah. How do you spend a million dollars in a month? Wine. All the wines. All of the wines, apparently. Yeah. When Brown asked Rudy about this, he refused to talk about it. Yeah, because it's not true. Rudy was spending money faster than anyone was used to at the wine auction houses. Don Cornwell, who is a self-proclaimed... <laughs> I'm sorry, what flashed in my head was Don Corleone. <laughs> <laughs> no, Don Cornwell. He's a self-proclaimed burgundy enthusiast, and okay. he was introduced to Rudy by John Capon, who's the auction director at an auction event. Rudy asked Don what burgundies he liked, and Don answered, Rumier, Rousseau, and DRC. So that is... The specific names are Domaine G. Rumier, uh-huh. Armand Rousseau, and Ruminet Conti, which are like... So I'm like, assuming those are French wines. Those are the... Well, Burgundy is only produced in France. Well, in the region of Burgundy. Yeah. Duh. And those are the three wine houses that are considered like the top of the top for Burgundy. Interesting. So then Rudy asked Don to start buying wines with him. Rudy claimed to have bought Rumier 1945, 1949, 1955, and 1962, whereas the oldest Don had ever been able to find was 1969. And Don had been looking for the older Burgundies for 25 years. Oh, wow. During this time, too, there was a huge demand for fine wine. And as a result, Burgundy went from being affordable to unattainable. And they call this effect the Rudy era. Interesting. So, like, for... An example I heard was like, I can't remember the varietal or I can't remember the actual vintage, but like this such and such Burgundy was in 1980 or in 1996 was like $400 a bottle. And then by like 2004, it was like $13,000 a bottle. That's ridiculous. I just killed it. Sorry. That's fine. I think we'll be okay. Yes. So we have more. Rudy, since he was buying up wines so voraciously, like he actually helped drive the market up. And yeah. there wasn't enough Burgundy to meet the demand because the 60s and 70s was a really bad time for Burgundy. Or I guess it was the 70s and 80s was a really bad so time for Burgundy. So they purchased all the 60s. They purchased 60s and under. Uh-huh. And then the... There was nothing available there from the 70s. There was nothing available from the 70s. Nothing good. That's insane, though, that one person or a couple people affected the market to that degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the prices were skyrocketing. And Rudy was pretty much cornering the market in some of the wines. He bought a ton of wine, drove up the prices. And another guy... Bill Koch, who's one of the... He's a brother of the Koch brothers. Oh, okay. He was also competing with Rudy for the wines. He actually, interestingly enough, has a wine bathroom. So there's cork... What is a wine bathroom? It's just a bathroom decorated with corks on the ceiling, wine labels as, like, wallpaper, crates and bottles for the walls. And he also, in his cellar, has 43,000 bottles of wine. In my head, I just saw a really beautiful bathroom. It was pretty, it was pretty cute. 
Like I could, I could come up with something cute for you. Yeah, I think you could do a little better than he did, but it was kind of <laughs> cool. Um, Bill, how much in a cellar? 43,000 bottles of wine. Forty-three thousand. That bottles. Bottles. Each one probably worth anywhere from five hundred to five thousand. I can imagine. Probably more than five thousand oh for sure. Gosh. So Bill Coke was the victim of counterfeit wine previously when he <gasps> paid over one hundred thousand dollars for a few bottles of <gasps> wine supposedly owned by Thomas Jefferson. <gasps> I remember reading about that. Yeah. So the Thomas Jefferson wine um, counterfeiting was probably like. It probably wasn't Rudy, but anyway, it was discovered to be counterfeit, yeah. and Bill Coke was the victim. He's the purchaser oh of these wines, and he still gosh. has them as of the date of the documentary film. Yeah, because that's still, like, everybody's heard about the Thomas Jefferson counterfeit scandal, so now the bottles would be worth something just by the value of being part of this big controversy, Yeah, this, I would think. It's all really interesting, too, because, um, so Bill Coke is kind of like a crusader at this point looking out for counterfeits because uh-huh. he had spent that much money and he had been the victim of counterfeit wines. So then Maureen Downey, who was the New York auction house director for a wine auction house in New York, mm-hmm. she said that weight is a really important factor in discovering counterfeit wine and whether it's in the right glass, wh- whether the glass is stamped is, um, the cork properly aged is the paper correct like all these things are what what she looks for mm-hmm. rudy also was quite an expert on fake wine and when questioned about this he claimed that he purchased so much fake wine that he had become an expert kind of <laughs> like bill coke so yeah you can i mean you could kind of like in your mind equate okay well if this happens to you a number of times, you're also going to become an expert on yeah. it. Yeah. But I'm assuming that they've they've sampled this wine prior to purchasing. No. So no. you just buy it, you yeah. just buy it unsampled. Because and just... sometimes it's <clears throat> the only bottle existing of this wine. Well, then that's just red flag all over the place. It's not because there are legit bottles of wine that are like the only bottle. Yeah. You're talking twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a bottle of wine. Right. I would be suspicious. But then I'm not a millionaire. Yeah. Rudy was working with John Capon to catalog all of his wines in order to sell some of them off. So Capon was the son of the proprietor of Acker, Maryland Condit, which was the oldest wine store in North America. It's in New York City. And between 03 and 06, Capon sold more than $35 million of wine from Rudy's cellar. Oh just my from Rudy's gosh. cellar. Oh my gosh. So he's just the middleman. He just takes your wine and puts it in his store. Yeah. because I want to go there. You may or may not be able to. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh my. So that has to do with your thing. So Acker, Acker, Maryland Condit went from the last place to the first place auction house of wine in the world. Wow. Rudy began buying Merlot and then... Once he got in with Acker, Maryland Condit, he began selling off $35 million in wine. So he escalated quickly. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bill Koch hired an investigator, Brad Goldstein, to find out how deep this wine counterfeiting thing has gone because Koch had discovered other fake wines coming in among his collection. So Bill Koch says, I want to know how deep this problem is in my cellar. So Coke hired experts in corks, labels, capsules, glass, and glue to uncover fakes. He found Elmer's glue on an 1858 label. Oh my God. Which Elmer's glue wasn't developed until like the seventies. That's insane. Yeah. The more they uncovered, the larger and larger the problem became. Coke has over 400 bottles that have been proven to be fake. So these people are not only counterfeiting wine, but they're doing it poorly. Some of them are very poorly. Why wouldn't you research and use period appropriate adhesive? I know, right? Like, I'm just going to use like Elmer's glue here. That's insane. Because it's probably the, the, the adhesive that was used was probably some homemade shit. Yeah. So you can probably make it. Yeah, for reals. Oh my god. So the more um oh the auction houses told him Tompi in French, which means tough luck when he con- when he <gasps> contacted them about the fake wines. You, I've bought over a million dollars of wine plus from you and you tell me, you know, tough luck. 
Also, my um, French might be completely wrong. I wrote it down phonetically, but now I'm even questioning that. So, <laughs> are you questioning what you translated it to? Or no, the translation's it? right. It's the pronunciation. <laughs> I love that it's tough luck, though, not tough shit. Yeah. So Coke began an all-out crusade against counterfeiters in I 2005. Bet. Uh, he and his investor were certain that, or he and his investigator were certain that some of the bottles purchased from Acker, Merrill, and Condit were without a doubt counterfeit. Wow. Coke tasked his investigator with finding out information about Rudy. So Brad Goldstein, the Coke's investigator, summed up his job as, quote unquote, and I like this quote, to show the elegance of the hustle. <sighs> so. It's a crime, but it's an elegant crime. And I'm going to show it to you. Ooh. Meanwhile, Laurent Ponceau, who's a Burgundy producer, also noticed inconsistencies at auction with his label, Domaine Ponceau. So he's from a long line of Burgundy producers. And he's noticing problems with his own product? He's noticing problems with auction items claiming to be to his be product. His product. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that would piss me off. Yeah, so he joined alongside Coke. Not really alongside Coke. They did it separately, but they were both working towards uncovering the counterfeiters. Ponceau flew to New York, and he asked John Capon to withdraw everything from his latest wine auction catalog. So what happened was, this is really, like, dramatic. That's a big ask. This is really dramatic. So this catalog comes out showing, like, all the potential investors or potential buyers what's going to be auctioned right. at this next auction. And so Ponceau's looking at it, and he's going, okay, this wine that you say is ours is from, you're saying it's from this vineyard. We didn't own this vineyard in this year. <gasps> and like, So they're just being stupid. So all these little inconsistencies. And so Ponceau shows up in New York. The auction has already started and he's sitting at the back of the room and like there's all this merriment and stuff because I told uh -huh. you they get them all drunk first. Yeah. Well, and then why wouldn't you? Ponceau stands up and demands Capen remove all of my wines from your auction oh my god yeah and capen does it though he's he says of course we'll remove all all of your items what a crazy scene that had to be yeah though. i mean it just like is akin to like i don't even know but i mean he just stood up and is like that's not mine pull it them, off yeah take them off the shelf basically that's insane but at the same time that's got to be so frustrating because you have worked and worked and worked to develop this reputation as this very good vineyard and house and then someone is ripping you off for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to millions of dollars and if if somebody opens that bottle of wine because these people are opening ridiculous bottles of wine and drinks it and it's crap then it looks bad on domain yeah that's gonna harm your reputation which is your livelihood that's insane. Yeah, it was, it's just a really crazy scene. So then by now it's 2008. So as you may or may not know, the stock market had crashed and the demand for like all these Uber luxury goods had waned. I'm aware. I bought my house in 2007. I'm very aware. <laughs> my, I had a trust friend from my aunt that, sh that husband and I should have been able to retire on. And within about a week and a half, we lost $130,000. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was it was fictional money. It was it was there for the future, but you had planned to use it for right. the future. <laughs> it was still gone. <laughs> so the auction, as I was mentioning, oh, and not to say that that's a lot of money, because for some people that's nothing. They lost ten times that amount, but for you know a school teacher and a plumber, it's well, you it's something that you have planned for for your future. Yeah, yeah. The same way as you plan for your house. House to go up in value, not plummet. <laughs> yes. Anyway, all, all of us victims of 0708, we can <laughs> unite in that. Um, woo woo. So as I said, the auction erupted in like this huge disturbance. And most of the people like pretty much were just kind of hanging on to the last of the days of excess. So they weren't really that affected by it. They kind of knew it was over. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, then once Laurent stood up and said, withdraw my wines, Capen took 30 of his lots down. And then Ponceau questioned Capen as to who the owner of the wines were that were putting them up for auction. Yeah. And it turns out it was Rudy. Oh, the little nerdy guy? Yeah. So the next Ooh. day, 
since Ponceau was already in New York, he met Rudy for the first time. Uh, Ponceau thought that either Rudy A did not know that the wines were counterfeit or B knew but was trying to sell them to get rid of them. Like he had purchased them, found out they were counterfeit and wanted to dump them. Gotcha. Off. I don't think so. I think he's a dirty, dirty dog. So Ponceau decided to play it cool. He thought he would befriend Rudy and get yeah. to know more about him. So he asked Rudy where the wines had come from. But Rudy initially stated that he didn't know. He'd have to Oh, look. I don't know. I just bought millions of dollars of wine. I'm not well, sure where it came from. Don't remember. I was drunk. That was pretty much what he said, except for... Oh, my like, God. He's like, I buy so much wine. I can't keep track of where it's all coming from. I'll have to... When I get back to LA, I'll have to check and see. Because with that high of a dollar figure, you don't keep records? He did have... He supposedly said he had records, but they were in LA. So, Ponceau... Rudy's a liar. Yeah, Ponceau decided that he would continue to try to just learn more about Rudy and just kind of keep him at arm's length, but still be friendly to him. Yeah. So meanwhile, on the Coke front, Coke's investigator received more information on Rudy from some high level government contacts. Apparently in 2003, the Department of Justice removed um, removal proceedings, issued a warrant for Rudy's arrest his student visa had expired and Rudy's origins were traced to Jakarta, Indonesia. Um, Ponceau in correspondence with Rudy finally got it out of him that the wines had been purchased from a seller in Jakarta. Okay. So we're, we've got a couple of ties to Indonesia here. Meanwhile, Rudy had been telling people that he's Chinese, but had been given an Indonesian surname to take the heat off of him being Chinese. Why can't he be Chinese? I don't know. I don't understand why that's Especially a thing. Especially if his, if his family is the family that imports Heineken to China. Well, that's not true. So. Well, yeah. But, like, you're in California. You can be Chinese you can or be Indonesian. Ch Nobody really cares. No, no one cares. Yeah. So, Coke's investigator... Oh. So, Rudy gave Ponso two phone numbers for the seller in Jakarta... And I can't, I didn't write down the name of the seller, but it turned out in Indonesian being like akin to something like Mr. Smith. So it's like a totally fake name. <laughs> um, one of the numbers was a fax and the other number did not answer. And Coke's investigator, after learning about these two numbers, had the numbers traced. So Coke found out that Ponceau had also been doing investigations and like pretty much got his investigator to start like working on some of the details. Uh -huh. So one of the numbers came back to an Indonesian airline, Lion Air, which is like a legit airline. It was probably the fax machine, I'm assuming. Yeah. And the second one came back to a fax store. Machine. Yeah. The second machine came back or the second number came back to a store in a strip mall associated with Rudy because that was like he, that number or that uh, address was affiliated with him somehow in his immigration proceedings. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so did he really live with his mom? He really lived with his mom. So he and his mother came over from either China or Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, later on, it turns out that like his mom and brother were really there. They were really present. Jeff with one F actually had dinner with mom and brother uh -huh. and Rudy a number of times. So that part was all legit. How is he playing off this lifestyle to his mom and his brother? Are they in on the whole Oh, they had thing money. Too? They had money. They actually had money. They had money. I guess you got to have money to make money. Yeah. So Coke's investigator went to Indonesia and they and he talked to the address or talked to people at the address where the strip mall was located and nobody claimed to know Rudy. So then meanwhile Ponceau took it upon himself, he went to Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taipei, which are very popular places with the wealthy Indonesians, uh -huh. to try to figure out who Rudy was. So he went to, like, restaurants and, like, places where they served high-end wine and was like, do you Have know you this guy? This Have you seen this yeah. dude? Oh, that's crazy. So now enter FBI agent Jim Wynn. The FBI gets involved? The FBI gets involved. Oh my Told you this is a long story. <laughs> I just can't imagine... Well, like that show White Collar with the counterfeits. Yeah. Hi, so, I'm with the FBI. It's funny that you say White Collar because Jim, Agent Jim Wynn's background is in financial crimes. Yeah. 
And so he tracked Rudy's finances and learned that Rudy had $16 million charged on his American Express. Oh my free ducking lord. Like, how do I get a black card? That's what I want to know. Right? $16 million. That is more money than I have seen in my entire lifetime come in and out of my world. Like, from zero to age, blah, 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 blah. Pretty much from all the people you're related to. From all of the people that I'm related to. Even your aunt that left you a sizable sum. (laughs) Oh my god. How do you owe that much money on an American Express card? I know. And then he had several really nice cars. Like he had Italian sports cars. He had a Mercedes SUV. He had a mansion in Bel Air that he paid $8.5 million for. He had art. Which sounds like nothing. $8.5 million. Speaking of Andy Warhol... Yeah, Andy Warhol. He had art from artists such as Jin Wang, Andy Warhol, and Damien Hirst, which I really only know Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. So I'm sure that like those other names might mean something to other people. But... They might be fancier than we are. <laughs> yeah, they're they're above our level of comprehension. <laughs> so oh my god! And I put this in, in his basement apartment at his mom's house. No, he had an 8.5 million dollar house. But he lived with mom. No, mom lived with him. Oh, okay. That yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. So, and I put this in in here just for you. Okay. Agent Wynn, gotta love him. He described Rudy as the quote unquote Gen X Great Gatsby. Yay! <laughs> yes, because Great Gatsby was a fraud. Yes, like Rudy. Oh my gosh. So, Agent Wynn found that Rudy was deep in debt. Don't get me wrong, I love me some Gatsby. Yeah. Rudy was very deep in debt, but Acker, Merritt, and Condit offered advances to beat out other auction houses for Rudy's businesses. So that was a common thing. Like, so they still want him. They still wanted they him. They know he's an asshole. He was spending the money. and That doesn't exist. Right. At the end of Wynn's um, investigation, Rudy was into Acker for almost $10 million. Yeah. I just mouthed, oh my God, you can't see it. Because it's audio. And I said yeah to it because I thought you could see it. <laughs> because. Because <laughs> the wine's working. Because the wine's working. <laughs> oh, by the way, the, um, what, $27 bottle of wine? I mean, it was probably 24 with our discount. <laughs> and it's really yummy. It's very good. So in 2011, Rudy was interviewed by Coke's lawyers about bottles that Coke had bought that had originated from Rudy's cellar. And he agreed to this meeting, but it was a deposition, so it was like an official. Yeah, gotta go. Yeah. Um, Capen stopped selling any of Rudy's wines. Rudy had to look for other sellers, which he was able to do via the internet. How are people still trusting him? Not everybody knows. Or this is the other thing they brought up that's really interesting is... This, like, world, which we don't understand, but there's such a, like, it's such a status thing to have these certain bottles that people almost, like, look the other way. They don't want it to be true that what they have is fake. So, it's like, they don't want to be the one that's duped, so they will hold on to the fact that, yes. No, it's real. It's real. It's real. And then they'll continue to buy more because they don't want to admit that what they did was fake. That's insanity. I would like to have their money and they can have our money. Their wine. They can have both of our money. They can have both of our money. I just think that I would be a better um, judge of. I can't even think of the word. Yeah. Um, Caretaker person. Custodian. Custodian. I would be a better, better custodian of their money. And I would do radical, crazy things like put solar on my house. So in 2009. Christie's auction house sold wine from Rudy in a Christie's. Series. Yeah. The Christie's. Why is Christie's involved with him at this point? Even though like people in the know knew better than to purchase wine from Rudy, Christie's still agreed to sell. They're his a wine. reputable auction house. Yeah. And our Burgundy enthusiast, Don Cornwell, in 2012. His uncov- name cracked me up. I'm sorry. But I love that he <laughs> I love that he's a self-proclaimed Burgundy enthusiast. <laughs> I am a Coors Light enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) So he uncovered info that the Spectrum Wine Auction House would be selling millions of dollars of Rudy's wines, like in the upcoming days. Okay. So Don sent out this urgent warning via the internet to all these like wine enthusiast sites. 
And the warning went viral. And then the FBI, like, really, like, spearheaded their effort. So the FBI went to Rudy's house to arrest him. Uh-huh. Oh, my uh, gosh. He's being arrested now. Yeah. Okay. He was home. He was taken into custody. And the house had wine everywhere. Like, imagine, like, you living in your master bedroom uh-huh. with a space heater and everything else in your house being wine and wine refrigerators and wine cases and wine crates. Oh, wow. A friend of ours does that with cash. Yeah. No, this is, like, even worse. Oh, my so, goodness. So there was also, like, the largest wine fridge ever that's not a walk-in. I want to see the largest wine fridge ever that's not a walk-in. Uh, wine bottles were soaking in the sink in order to soak the labels soaking off. Soaking in the sink? Oh, because he's got to fake them! Yeah, there were several bottles next to the sink waiting to be labeled. There was a cork extraction device, which, a.k.a., is that just a corkscrew? Because they no. called it a cork extraction device. Well, because, but you've got to be able to get the cork, but see, how do you do that? How do you get the cork out without the cork expanding once it comes out? Because the second the cork comes out of the bottle, it expands. And you cannot put it back in the bottle unless you have a corking machine. Well, they, he had a recorking machine. But yep. even so, once the cork has been exposed to moisture, doesn't it expand automatically? I don't know. But he had a cork extraction device and a recorking device. He had a funnel. Just one, and it was a plastic funnel, which seems to me like that's pretty chintzy when you bought oh, it totally a stainless is. funnel. I would have bought a stainless or a glass funnel. Yeah. Um, why? How? Okay. This just seems crazy to me because if there's just bottles soaking in the sink, how do you keep track of what crap gets what good label? We'll talk about that. Oh. So he had 20 bottles in the kitchen acting as... Because what if you accidentally put Barbera on a Merlot? No, that's... Rudy was not going to let that happen. He had 20 bottles in the kitchen acting as a mixing station. He had notations written on them, such as change the year, change the vin- vintage size, serial number. There were unlabeled bottles with notations that were formulas, tons of blank label, not blank labels, but tons of unused labels. And he had the thermostat set at 63 degrees, whereas why right. he had the space heater in the bedroom. Right. But basically, he was taking cheaper wines, and because his palate was so developed, uh-huh. he was able to mix wine to, to mimic to mimic these high-end wines. And he had formulas. But so that means he had to have tasted these high-end wines. Oh, he tasted them. And he, then how did he, he legit purchase some of these wines, tasted them, and then recreated them? So how, that's insane. That is a palate. I drink what I like. Like I. I Drink what I like. Everybody I can't tell that, you anything about anything. Everybody that knew him, like, they commented on how, like, easily he was able to describe wine and how good his palate was. I think it would be very difficult to eat if you had a palate like that. Yeah. But, um, so how did he, though, counterfeit the labels? Because some of the labels are very intricate, and some of the historical labels would have old paper and old ink and old adhesive. Well, so... Sometimes he was able to get labels from the bottles. Um, One of the things he did often, especially with being in the group he was in and how much money he spent on wine and like restaurants, is he would get bottles from restaurants, empty bottles. Yeah, that was one of the things he did. And he, in fact, actually... Who buys that fancy stuff at restaurants? Well, he and his group. Oh my goodness. So he would go to dinner with these people that he is duping and then he would go back to the restaurant and collect the empty bottles he, of what they drank. Yeah, he he basically and then sell it back to them. He had an arrangement with the one particular restaurant that had like all these high-end wines. I think it was in New York that he would get all the empty bottles shipped to him. So anything that he bought or that his table bought, the empty bottles would be shipped to him and he told them that And then he knew what that tasted like so he could recreate it. Yeah. And oh my goodness, this man's a genius. He told them basically like I collect the bottles because I like to write down any notes I have and like write it on the bottle and I'm saving it like kind of as a remembrance of that bottle. You would not question that. Um so then yeah, Rudy was charged, he was taken to a detention center in New York City. He was deemed a flight risk because of his connections to Indonesia, and yeah, he was thanks. denied bail. So then federal prosecutor Jason Hernandez gets involved, and he uncovered that Rudy had been purchasing thousands of dollars of wax. He had been buying paper known for its antique properties, um, empty wine bottles from restaurants, like I mentioned. Yeah. He had a commercial-grade scanning and printing um, 
abilities. So he would take the label of the fancy wine, scan it, and print it on this antique paper and produce multiple bottles, I'm using air quotes, of that that's, wine. Yeah, that's the allegation. Oh and my gosh. Because of his palate, he was blending wines to taste, just like the vintage wines he was going for, and he had even formulas written out. I would just pay for those formulas. Like, wouldn't that be, like, just amazing to I would see? not know what I was looking at. I know, me neither. So basically, uh-huh. like, all the experts, pretty much every wine expert agrees, like, nobody else can do what Rudy did. Like, there's very few people wow. in the world, like, even, like, high-end sommeliers that couldn't do Okay, what so Rudy he did. needs to be hired by the FBI to tr- track counterfeiters. I mean, I guess, I, I think that they just don't care about the wine counterfeiting industry because it only really, Well, like, he was the big dog. He's, yeah. he's caught. And it really only big affects, dogs like, bars. a certain population of people. <laughs> I guess. Like, I'm not worried about getting counterfeit wine. I'm not wine. worried about getting counterfeit wine because I buy wine and I drink it. Um, there was also signs that pointed to uh, Rudy's brothers also being involved. What's interesting is, so, the operation that they found in his house was on, like, a certain scale, but the amount of wines that were flowing into the market were like 10 or 20 times that. Like, there's no way he personally could have produced that number of counterfeit wines. So there was more counterfeiters than just him. Yes. So what about, though, his house being completely full of wine? Was he just doling it out a little bit at a time so as not to completely overwhelm well, the market? Well, a lot of that was his or... personal, like, some of that was his personal seller. And some of so it, some was real. Yeah, some of it was real. And all along, even wines that he put out to auction, some of it was real. Oh, wow. Um, he had to be an amazing bookkeeper. Yeah. Well, they found out, too, in t- 2007, which is, like, before he got caught, at the height of, like, kind of the whole thing, Rudy had wired $17 million of his income from the wine sales to his brothers in Hong Kong and Indonesia. Rudy ended up pleading not guilty. Of course he did. He was convicted, though. He became the first person ever convicted of selling fake wine in the U.S., and he was sent- sentenced to 10 years in prison. And he had to pay a $28.4 million restitution. And he's actually at a federal prison in the California desert. Oh, desert. And it's estimated that up to 10,000 bottles of his wine may still be in private collections. But like I mentioned, some people are never going to say this is fake. And in fact, in the documentary... Well, because if they don't admit that it's fake, they can probably resell it. Yeah, well, that or they just can have that wine. Yes, I have this in my cellar. Yeah, in the documentary, Jeff with one F Jeff with is... One F, such a douche. I'm uh, sorry, Jeff with one F, but your name is a douchey. Is he's opening a bottle of wine that supposedly came from Rudy, and he's like, this uh-huh. one's real, and like all these other people are trying it, and they're like, no, dude, this isn't <gasps> real. But how can you even know? And Jeff with one yeah. F is still just like, no, Rudy didn't do this. Like, Rudy's a good guy. Like, I don't believe it. He's still defending him? Yes. Oh, my gosh. The guy's a fraud. Holy yes. smoky so, smokies. So, anyway, the documentary is Sour Grapes. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. That's insane. Yeah. Um, I, okay, I literally have spent time employed by wineries, and I'm still, I drink what I like. I drink what I like. I don't taste the whole black cherry blah, 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 blah. If it tastes good to me, I will drink it. I mean, I can get, like, I get a little bit of the art of it. Like, you know, you can kind of try to pull out, like, oh, this has a citrus flavor. Uh-huh. Or this has that. Like, it's kind of fun. But I think I've had just such bad sinuses from all of the sinus infections and allergies and such when I was a kid that I can't smell. But... <laughs> I can still taste, and I drink what I like. Interesting. I like this. This is good. This is um, New Clairvaux Barbera. New Clairvaux is the most adorable winery. It is um, run by Cistercian monks? um, No. It's uh, the other kind. I don't know the other kind. Monks. It's run by monks. It's run by monks. It was originally Leland Stanford's property that... um, Trappist monks. Trappist monks. It's on the bottle. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Um, They can talk. I've gone to Midnight Mass. There is gorgeous. It's just a beautiful property. Oh, it's a beautiful property. But it was originally owned by Leland Stanford and he made the the brick the wine bricks remember the wine bricks yes the wine in bricks our, the original in the version ar- of our podcast yes 
which did not make it. We'll have to talk about wine bricks someday. We're going to have to talk about wine bricks someday. What channel Did you go over the, like, bricks from, and then they were, like, sitting on the beach or whatever? We did not talk about that from the winery. The winery in question um, is, like I said, it used to be owned by Leland Stanford. And at one point, I don't know how he was involved, but um, Hearst had a castle dismembered for lack of a better word, in Scotland and brought over illegally. And so the stones were unloaded and left in the San Francisco Park, the Golden Gate Park. And they were left there for what, how many years? I don't remember. Do you remember? A ridiculous amount of years. But finally, these monks at New Clairvaux were allowed, given permission to go get them. And they have created, they have built a... um, chapel the original plan was to recreate the castle completely but they couldn't do that so they built a chapel with these bricks and they positioned them so that the stonemason's markings of who made the brick are on the inside so you can actually see them and i have beautiful pictures of child one and child two when we went out there after grandpa's funeral to um just that, drink wine and explore and be with the family. Funeral or was that during Halloween? No, it was Grandpa's funeral. But we're definitely not like high class experts on wine. No, we're just drunks. Hey, so if you like us, you can always let us know. Uh, rate, review any podcast catcher or whatever you call them that you listen to us on. Leave us a rating and a review. It would really help. Yeah, and if you have any comments or suggestions, email oh. us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Cocktail suggestions. Send us cocktail suggestions. That would be fun. Yeah, we've been, get- we've been getting a lot, and we love them, but keep them coming. Yeah. Another way to get a hold of us at for Twitter is at Time and Crime. Yeah, Instagram, we're also at Crime and Time. And check out our Facebook page. We always post little hints of the cocktail that's coming up and just fun little things. And that is Crime and Time on the Rocks or at Crime and Time OTR. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know. Cheers. Thank you for listening.